crane made tight the cable, and the tech hands cut loose the container's binding chains, while lines secured to winches on both vessels attempted to steady the dangling container, for if it swung too violently, it was likely to capsize the barge. As the first of these four lines snapped, the container, dangling precipitously over the void of open foam between barge and ship, shifted awkwardly, suddenly at a treacherous angle. Above the deafening whistle of wind and the lion's roar of the sea came the muted but unmistakable cry of human voices from within this container. A crewman crossed himself and looked toward heaven. A second line snapped. A third. The container swung and slipped out of the harness, splashing into the water. It submerged and then bobbed back up like a whale surfacing. The captain of the visage barked his orders. The mighty twin screws spun to life, the gigantic ship lumbering to port and away from the barge and crane in an effort to keep the container from being crushed between the vessels. The spotlights on the freighter were ordered extinguished as the ship was consumed by the storm, lumbering back toward the shipping lane where it belonged. Behind it, in its wake, the abandoned container, singing of human screams and cries of terror, rode the mounting swells into darkness, lost to the wash of the waves and the whim of the wind. Chapter 2 On the evening of Monday, August 10th, when the coattails of Typhoon Mary had receded into little more than a torrential downpour, a rust-orange container appeared bobbing in the churning green waters and whitecaps of Puget Sound. Spotted by a co-pilot of a test flight returning to Boeing Field, it was immediately reported to the Coast Guard. Loose containers were not an uncommon occurrence in the sound. The urgency behind the Coast Guard's efforts to recover the orphaned container began as a result of the threat to navigation, especially with night closing in. Metal icebergs, they were called. This urgency was heightened, however, as the Coast Guard's patrol boat came alongside the partially sunken container and human cries were heard from within. At that point, the call went out to the Seattle Police Department. The piano sounded better than ever. For an old beat-up baby grand in a smoke-filled comedy bar, where no one paid the instrument any attention except for the homicide cop who presently occupied its bench, his large hands and stubby fingers evoking a somber rendition of Blue Monk, its tone was earthy and mellow, just the way jazz and blues were supposed to sound. The notes flowed out of Lou Bolt, without conscious thought or preparation, sounding of the torments born of forty-odd years of life in a job involving all too much death. Bolt aimed his interpretation toward the table where his wife and friends sat. If his five-year-old son and three-year-old daughter had been there, he would have had everything and everyone that mattered to him in this one room. Elizabeth, his sweetheart, wife, and partner. Doc Dixon, the county medical examiner who'd been his friend for most of Bolt's twenty-plus years with Seattle Police. John Lamoya, who had taken Bolt's place as Crimes Against Persons squad sergeant. Bobby Gaines, the first woman cop to join that squad. Daphne Matthews, forensic psychologist and confidant, and the lab's Bernie Lofgren with his Coke bottle glasses and leaking balloon laugh. He didn't need to invent an emotion behind his playing. Liz's lymphoma had been in remission for one full year, and Bolt's happy hour performance that night at Bear Berenson's club, The Joke's on You, had developed into an impromptu celebration of her progress, a celebration that only a cop's wife could tolerate, but one that Liz would actually appreciate. Morbid humor was a way of life with this group, and while Liz didn't totally fit in with the others, they were family to her, just as they were to her husband. While a few at the table were above teasing Liz about how she'd looked when her hair had fallen out during treatment, or about smoking pot to bring on a taste for food, no one was really talking about anything either. No one discussed that his new desk job was a problem for Bolt, 
that he ached for the opportunity to slap on a pair of latex gloves and get back out into the field. Similarly, no one talked about the fact that for Liz's doctors, her long remission was both unexpected and still unexplained. They wouldn't recommend breaking out the champagne for another three to five years, but Liz herself was sanguine. She credited God with her healing, and Bolt kept his mouth shut on that one. He felt that he and Liz had yet to recapture their comfort zone, but he wasn't about to talk about that either. So that night, no one discussed much of anything. They joked. They drank. They drank some more. When the pages started sounding, it seemed like something orchestrated for a comedy sketch, except that everyone knew immediately that it must be serious, since one call simultaneously summoned the lab, the medical examiner, and the homicide squad. Lamoya flipped his cell phone closed and said, "'It's a shipping container, sinking out in the sound, people screaming inside, still alive. Coast Guard's towing it ashore.'" Still alive.